Good morning. Hey, my name is Kevin, and uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Genesis. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I want to start by asking you a question. Do you ever wish you had more courage to share your faith in Jesus with others? Have you ever been in a conversation with someone, and you really wanted to talk about Jesus? You wanted to bring Jesus into the conversation Maybe share your personal story. Maybe try to explain the gospel with them. But you found yourself so nervous and afraid, and you just didn't know what to say or how to say it, and you just didn't say anything. Ever, ever experienced a moment like that? Yeah, lots of us have. Let me ask you this. Is there a specific person in your life right now that you'd like to talk to about Jesus? Maybe try to think of someone's name specifically. Maybe it's a, a friend or a family member, someone at work or in your neighborhood. Or maybe a classmate at school. Can you think of someone? Got a name? Some of you have maybe invited someone that's sitting here with you today because you want them to know about Jesus. Well, today we're in week three of our series called Sent. We are studying the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. The book of Acts records the beginning and the development of the early church. Jesus, during his ministry, promised his disciples, he said, I'm going to build my church. And then after his death and his resurrection, just before he ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you, my disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses. A witness is someone who has the knowledge of a fact or event based on their personal experience of it. And so the rest of the book of Acts essentially gives us the story of the disciples and the apostle Paul and the early church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sent out as witnesses. And they told others about their knowledge and their experience of Jesus. This is one of the primary roles of the church. And for the last couple of weeks, we've discussed that the church is not a building or a place you go to. The church is not an event. The church is a collection of people, a family. And what unites us as brothers and sisters is our shared relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the early Christ followers would gather together as a family to care for one another and to live life together. But they weren't a closed family. The early church was a family on mission. Jesus sent them out on mission saying, you'll be my witnesses. And see, to be a Christ follower is to be a witness. We are a sent people. That's why we've said a church shouldn't be known or defined by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. This is the kind of church we see in the book of Acts. It's the kind of church that we want to be here at Genesis. And so if you're a Christ follower, you are part of a family on mission. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you'd say, I'm not, I, don't, I won't consider myself a Christ follower just yet. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you, you want to learn more about Jesus. You want to find some answers to your spiritual questions. God's doing something in your life, but you're not quite sure what you believe. Here's my challenge for you this morning. As we look at this story from the book of Acts, I want to challenge you to consider, is this story true? Is it true? And if this story we're going to look at today, if it's true, then how should it influence your life. And really, that's the question we all want to wrestle with today. Before we go any further, let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus. I'm so thankful for this church family and what you're doing in the life of our, our church family. Lord, I believe that everyone here this morning is here for a reason. No one's here by accident. 
I trust, Father, you have something to say to each one of us. So would you give us your Holy Spirit? Would you open our eyes and our ears? And would you speak to our hearts today, Lord? Let us hear your voice and follow your leadership. Would you do something here as we study your word, Lord? Would you do something that would bring glory to your name, Jesus? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We're going to review the story a little bit here. So Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. And then on the day of Pentecost, uh, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Last week, Ben talked about how the Holy Spirit is our source of power. Kind of like a chainsaw. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to accomplish her mission. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple in Jerusalem for prayer. And as they go up to the temple, on their way in to go in to pray, uh, they encounter a lame man. And this guy is paralyzed and can't walk. Peter heals the man in the name of Jesus. The guy gets up, he starts walking around, he's jumping, he's praising, he's praising God. A crowd of people see this and they come find Peter. Peter preaches a message to them. You can read the entirety of Peter's message in Acts chapter 3, but I want to quickly highlight two verses that I think summarize his whole message there in chapter 3. In verse 15, Peter says this, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. That's good. I like, that's a simple message. It's a simple message, but it's a powerful one, right? Jesus is the author of life. He was crucified. God raised him from the dead. We witnessed it all with our own eyes. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, repent then and turn to God. This is what he's telling to them. This is how they should respond to the good news of Jesus. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Your sins may be forgiven. That times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter invites a response, and he calls them to repentance. And while he's speaking, right in the middle of his message, trouble shows up. He gets interrupted. This is where we pick up our story today, Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Let's see what happens. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They got a crowd of people. They're teaching. They're preaching. They come up and interrupt. They, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, are greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was in the evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who had heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. So Peter and John are preaching to a large crowd. The priests, the temple, and the guard, the Sadducees are greatly disturbed by this. Why? Why are they, why are they so disturbed by this? Well, the Sadducees were leaders in Israel. They were a strange mix, one part religious leaders, one part kind of political leaders. They were not believers in Jesus. In fact, you may recall they helped to have Jesus arrested and crucified a few months ago. And so they had a great deal of power and influence among the Jewish people. And so the message that Jesus was raised from the dead was a threat to their power. It was a threat to their position, even a threat to their way of life. And beyond that, the Sadducees were rationalist, meaning... As a group, they rejected the whole concept of a resurrection, the resurrection of the dead. And they had no hope in the coming Messiah. And because they had no hope, they were sad, you see. Dad jokes, dad jokes, dad jokes, dad jokes, dad jokes, dad jokes. Dads, you can use that. Feel free to drop that on your kids today at lunch. By the way, not that you care, but it's been a few months since I last preached. I thought I'd give you a little personal update. My wife is pregnant with baby number five on the way. Um, thank you. We're really excited making disciples. Um, I had to, had to. 
I'm sorry. I appreciate your leaders. I'm glad Paul's in Carmel today. Okay, Peter and John are proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. So they're proclaiming Jesus rose from the dead, and the leaders are greatly disturbed by this. Listen, listen, if we proclaim, if we claim that Jesus rose from the dead, we can expect it's going to disturb some people in our lives. But take note that many who heard the message did believe. And the disciple-making movement is growing, and Jesus is building his church. His church. Well, John and Peter spend the night in jail. Let's look back at what happens. Let's look back at the text and see what happens the next day. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas and John and Alexander and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or name did you do this? Do you recognize the name Caiaphas? These are some of the very same leaders that arrested and crucified Jesus just a few months earlier. And now they're questioning Peter and John, by what power or name did you do this? To do something in someone's name means you do something with their authority. So, for example, a police officer who carries a badge, they pull you over, they pull you over with the authority of the police. Well, these leaders had crucified Jesus a few months ago, and they expected the movement to die with Jesus. Now here are two of his followers who are carrying the badge of Jesus, and they're teaching and healing with the authority of Jesus. Now, listen to how Peter responds to their questions. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. Pause. Peter's being a little sarcastic here. He's saying, okay, listen, let's be real. You didn't arrest us because we healed a guy and we helped a guy and we were showing kindness. That's not why you arrested us. You arrested us because we did it in the name of Jesus. He continues, then you and all the people of Israel, here's, here's what you need to know. Here's, here's, the me- here's Peter's message to these leaders. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you heal. He goes on. Uh, where are we at? Verse 11. Jesus is the, st- he says, Peter says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. By the way, that's a messianic prophecy Peter's referring to back in the Psalms that the religious leaders would have known. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In verse 8, Luke, the author of Acts, makes the point to say that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if I were to ask you, where do you see the Holy Spirit working in this story? You'd probably immediately point to the healing of the lame man, right? That's what gets our attention. That's what's got the, uh, the attention of the leaders as well. And, that's, and rightly so. That's, that's Holy Spirit working through Peter to heal man. But I think when, Peter, when Luke says, when Luke writes, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit right before Peter starts speaking, I think Peter, I mean Luke, is trying to draw, draw our attention to the remarkable work of the Spirit in Peter's boldness to proclaim Jesus. Remember, Peter just a few months ago denied he knew Jesus, and now he's standing up and he's boldly proclaiming the gospel. And he gives a great summary of the gospel in verse 12. Let's look at it again. Peter says this, salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation's found in no one else. else. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's a bold statement. 
for Peter to make 2,000 years ago, and it's a bold statement for us to make today. So I want to push pause on the story just for a minute. Because just as in Peter's day, today, if you claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven, you're going to expect some objections. I want to briefly address two of the more common responses or objections that people have. First, claiming that Jesus is the only way to God is arrogant. People say, if you believe Jesus is the only way, you're being arrogant. You're saying you're right and everyone else is wrong, and that's arrogant because it's exclusive. You're excluding all other religious beliefs and moral viewpoints. Ever struggle with this line of thinking? I have. How, how do we reconcile this tension? Well, here's the problem with this argument. And think with me here. The truth is, all religious beliefs and moral viewpoints are by nature exclusive. Every one of them. It doesn't matter what you believe. The moment you state your belief, you are by nature excluding all other beliefs that differ from your belief. Right? Think, again, keep thinking with me. A couple of quick examples. Let's take Islam, for example. Muslims believe Muhammad was the last and final prophet of God. Well, the moment you state that belief, you are by nature excluding all other beliefs that differ from that belief. And so you've excluded every person who doesn't believe that. Let's take another moral viewpoint. How about this one? All roads lead to heaven. Doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe something, everyone is basically right. And by the way, this is the predominant moral viewpoint in our culture and society today. I'll be candid. Some of you in this room believe this. You'd say, yeah, that's what I believe. I mean, I'm coming to church here. I believe in Christianity, but I believe all, all religions, ultimately, all, all, all roads lead to heaven. Well, I want to caution you because that sounds like a really inclusive statement, but it's dangerously deceptive. Because as, as soon as you proclaim that belief, you're excluding everyone else who doesn't hold that belief, which, by the way, is almost every, every major world religion. And so... To say all roads lead to heaven sounds really inclusive, but as soon as you state that belief, you've just excluded everyone in the world who differs from that belief. And so actually, all roads lead to heaven is just as exclusive of a statement as Jesus is the only way. They're equally exclusive. Does that make sense? Here's the point. All religious beliefs and moral viewpoints, no matter what they are, are by nature exclusive. So... Is claiming Jesus the only way to God arrogant and exclusive? No. No, it's not, it's not arrogant. It's not any more arrogant or exclusive than any belief. Now, pastor and author Tim Keller makes the argument that all religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. He goes on to write this. Keller says, What sets Christianity apart from all other religions is the resurrection of Jesus. See, all religions have a prophet or a sage of some kind, and they claim to show you the way to God. Christianity is different. Christianity is the only religion that says this person was God and is God, and he became flesh, and he died for the forgiveness of our sins, and he was raised from the dead to prove it. And the message of Christianity is it's by grace we've been saved, that there's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. It's a gift freely offered to everyone. Keller writes, it's just a different category. You have to come, and you have to come to grips with this in order to be a Christian. It forces you, he says, to grapple with the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, the question isn't, is the message of Christianity arrogant? The question is, is it true? 
Is the story that Peter and John told of Jesus true? And if it's true, it's not arrogant at all. It's simply the truth. And so here's the question for you today. Do you believe Peter and John were telling the truth? Do you? And if you believe it's a true story, do the people in your life know that you believe it's a true story? Do your family members know? What about your friends? Do your coworkers or your classmates, do they know that you believe the story of Jesus is a true story? Maybe for you the answer is yes. Uh, they do know. You've done your best to tell most of the people in your life about your faith in Jesus. Maybe the answer is no. They, they don't know. You've never really shared your faith with anyone. My guess is for most of us, we'd fall somewhere in the middle. We've told some people. But many of us, some of us, I'll say this, some of us may wonder, well, who am I to tell someone else what to believe, right? That's a common thought and question. That's a, that's a second objection that people often raise. Many people today believe that religion is a matter of personal preference. Religion is a matter of personal preference. The argument is this. Everyone can believe what they want, and maybe it's even okay to share what you believe, but we shouldn't try to persuade others to believe differently. I just read the results of a recent study by the Barna Group that I, I, just, it, oh, I just say that it just breaks my heart. The report says that a recent report says that almost half of millennials who were polled today, for, so it's 47% of people aged 20 to 35 today, and this is Christians, these are Christians, 47% of, of, of Christians 20 to 35 today believe it is, quote, wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. What are we teaching? This is so disturbing to me. This makes no sense at all. If you truly believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, if you, if you truly believe that, how could you not want to persuade others to personally consider the claims of Christ? I recently read a real-life story that I think illustrates the absurdity of the opinion that it's not right to share your faith in Jesus with others. It's not right to try to persuade others to believe differently than what they believe. Several years ago, there was a helicopter crash and six people were seriously injured. They were rushed to a hospital where doctors worked furiously to save them. There was one woman who had broken both of her femurs, her pelvis, and her ribs. But when she was wheeled into the hospital, she was awake and aware of her situation. Because of all the broken bones, she had internal bleeding that, if left unresolved, would ultimately result in her death. She needed a blood transfusion. With this, she would likely survive. But this woman was a Jehovah's Witness, and she believed a blood transfusion was, for, for, was forbidden by God. Therefore, she refused the treatment. As she laid there, slowly dying, the doctors and the nurses begged and pleaded with her. They brought in several different types of medical professionals. They even brought in attorneys. They made every effort to reason with her. Please let us save you. They did everything they could trying to get her to accept their life-saving treatment. They were trying to persuade her to believe differently than what she believed. But sadly, she died. The other five people in the helicopter crash survived. Now, in this story, I want you to see something. You have two different beliefs. 
on one hand, a belief that says a blood transfusion is forbidden by God and therefore I don't want one. On the other hand, a belief that a blood transfusion transfusion will save your life, and therefore we will plead with you, please let us give you the treatment. Now, I'm not even going to argue whose belief is right and whose belief is wrong. That's not the point of the story. My point is this. Can you imagine the doctors and the nurses who believed in their hearts that they could save her, making absolutely no effort at trying to persuade her? That would be the most illogical, the most unloving and unnatural thing for them to do. Oh, well, she doesn't believe in blood transfusions. Well, good. Hope you die, you know, have a, have a nice death. That makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. And it makes no sense why anyone would say they believe that Jesus is the way to salvation, but I don't think it's right to try to persuade others to believe that. Do you see the broken logic? And by the way, these doctors and nurses, they weren't trying to condemn her or her beliefs. One of the most well-known and often quoted passages in the Bible is John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We don't often quote the very next verse, verse 17, when Jesus continues and he says this about himself. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to what? Save. Save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn, he came to save. If we are to imitate Jesus, if we are to follow in his footsteps and pattern our lives after his life, then we must do the same. When we tell people about Jesus, we're not condemning people or their beliefs, we're trying to save them. Okay, let's recap the story for a minute. Step back into the story. Peter and John are put in, in jail. The, the next day they're questioned. Peter responds, he makes a bold statement. Salvation's found in no one else but Jesus. Let's look at how the leaders respond to, Peter, to Peter's bold claim. Pick it up in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Like, what are you going to do? This guy was, everybody knew this guy couldn't walk, and now he's walking around. And they're like, well, our, our, our hands are tied. So they ordered, verse 15, so they ordered them, here's what they do. They ordered them uh, to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then they confer together. So they say, Peter and John, we, we need some time to talk this over. So they get together, verse 16. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign. We can't deny it. But here's what they say, verse 17, to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them back together. Okay, come on in here. We got something to say to you. They called them in, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They threatened them. My guess is it was not only a verbal threat. My guess is there was an emotional threat. My sense is there's probably anger. They may have gotten in their faces. I mean, they're, they're trying to threaten these guys and warn these guys. Luke writes in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they were astonished. The ESV says when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. The word for boldness or courage is transliterated in Greek as parisa. Parisa. I can't even say it right. Parisa. Let's say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. Parisa. Oh, that's good. Y'all did better in the first service. Um, you are my favorite. Uh, what does parisa mean? It means freedom in speaking. Free and fearless confidence, 
and boldness. This is what they saw in Peter and John that left them astonished and amazed. They couldn't understand why did these guys have this? Why were Peter and John, uh, why did they possess this freedom and fearlessness? I'll tell you why. Because Peter and John should not have had it. They, shouldn't have, they should not have had this boldness. It doesn't make sense that they were, were fearless. And let me give you two reasons why. First, they were unschooled ordinary men. They were fishermen. Peter and John had no formal training. They weren't professionals. They were amateurs. And when it comes to sharing our faith, I think one of the major obstacles we often have is that we feel unschooled and ordinary. Am I right? Most of you think, well, I've never been to Bible college. I've never had seminary. I've never had formal training. You think, I'm just a, te- I'm just a teacher or I'm just a student. I'm just a nurse. I'm a salesman. I, I, I'm a construction worker. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I, I don't have what it takes. I don't have all the answers. I don't know enough about the Bible. Guess what? Peter and John could relate. They didn't either. They were unschooled and ordinary. And yet that didn't stop them from boldly proclaiming Jesus. That's what Jesus loves. That's what God loves. God loves to use unschooled, ordinary people. That didn't stop them. It shouldn't stop us as well. The second reason why they shouldn't have had the courage they had was because they were facing death. Think about this. They're standing in front of some of the very same leaders that crucified Jesus. Peter and John must have been thinking in that moment, we're next. They had to be thinking, we're going to get crucified. There's no reason. We have the end of the story. They didn't. They've been arrested. They've been put in jail. They're being questioned by the same people that crucified Jesus. They have to be thinking, we're getting crucified next. We're going to die. And yet they didn't let the fear of death keep them from proclaiming Jesus. Listen, most of us will not likely face a physical death because of our faith. But I want to talk to you for a minute about a kind of death that we face. And for many of us, it causes great fear. And that's a social death. When I say social death, what I mean is being rejected by people we know and love and losing relationships because we share our faith and boldly proclaim Jesus. This is one of the reasons why many of us, if not most of us, do not share our faith in Christ. Listen, it is normal to fear rejection because rejection hurts. But how do we overcome this fear? In verse 19, I think Peter and John's response to their threats and warnings give us the secret. Look at verse 19. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. Notice the phrase, which is right in God's eyes. Peter and John are more concerned about what God thinks than what these leaders think. They were living for God's acceptance and approval. They weren't looking for the acceptance and approval of others. When it comes to sharing the gospel and telling others about Jesus, whose acceptance and approval are you more concerned with, God's or theirs? God's or people? Now, for the Christ follower, here's the challenge. You cannot look for acceptance from both God and man. You have to make a decision. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. You cannot be mastered by both God and man. You have to choose whose acceptance and approval are you going to live for. Listen, people's opinions of you are fairly insignificant. What other people think about you really doesn't matter. When you and I stand before God's throne, when we look Jesus in the eyes, when we are face to face with our Heavenly Father and our Lord and Savior, there will be only one opinion in the whole universe that matters in that moment, and it's His. Let's live for that moment. 
I'm not saying we should ever intentionally be obnoxious in sharing Jesus with people. I don't think we should intentionally provoke people to reject us. That's not what I'm saying. We don't need to be obnoxious. We don't need more obnoxious Christians. But we need bold Christians who will boldly, unashamedly, fearlessly, and freely speak about Jesus. We must be wise. We must be wise. We must be prayerful. Just as Peter and John did, we need to be filled and guided by the Holy Spirit. I also think we can get equipping and training, just as Jesus had equipped and trained Peter and John. That's why we've developed at Genesis our multiply training. We've had over 100 people attend over the last uh, 15 months. We've had over 100 people attend our multiply training. We're offering another one coming up later this spring on Saturday, April 13th. If you want to mark your calendars, we'd love for you to join us. But here's the point. When we boldly proclaim Jesus to the people in our circles of influence, we may get ridiculed. We may get insulted by them. We may be rejected by them. To share Jesus with someone we know and have them reject us and maybe even lose that relationship would be a painful experience. But is Jesus not worth it? Is their salvation not worth the risk of losing the relationship? Not worth the risk of the pain of rejection? And we can be encouraged because in the midst of painful rejection, we can rejoice because it's then when we share in the suffering of Christ. It's in those moments when we get a small teaspoon taste of the rejection that Jesus suffered on, your and I behalf, on our behalf. But if we truly believe the story of Jesus is true, how can we not re risk rejection and tell others? Now, some of you here this morning, you've yet to put your faith and trust in Christ. I want, you to, I want to invite you this morning. I want to invite you this morning to do it. I want to invite you this morning to believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? That you will be saved. And here's what he says. For it is with your heart that you believe. If you believe in your heart and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and you're saved. Maybe, maybe you've never believed in your heart. Maybe you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of your life. I invite you to do it today. Do it today. After the service is over, come forward. We got some, we'll have some pastors up here. We'd love to talk with you. Maybe you've believed in Jesus, but you've never confessed with your mouth. Let me just tell you, that's an important step for you to take. Maybe today you want to, for the first time, just confess with your mouth. Hey, I've never told anybody, but I, I believe in Jesus, and I, I want him to be the Lord of my life. Peter and John believed it with all of their hearts. And in spite of being unschooled and ordinary, in spite of facing a potential death filled with the Holy Spirit, with freedom and fearlessness, they boldly proclaimed Jesus and they couldn't help but confess it. They couldn't help but share it. Verse 20 says this, as for us, Peter and John said, we cannot help. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Have you seen and heard of Jesus? Have you encountered him? Have you experienced Jesus in your life? How can we help not speaking and telling others about Christ? Here's how the scene ends with the leaders in the Sanhedrin. After further threats, they kept threatening them, threatening them. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. I want you to notice that the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, I want you to notice whose eyes were they living in front of? The people's. Who were they more concerned about getting acceptance and approval of the people. And Peter and John say, we'll go to our death 
we care less about what you think. We're living inside of our Heavenly Father. Let's follow their model. Let's be like Peter and John. They're released, and afterwards, they go back to their church family, and they report to the church all that had happened. You can read about it in, chapter, in the second half of chapter 4. The whole church family begins praising God over what happened. But it's not just they don't praise God. They don't praise God because they were released. I want you to notice the prayer that they pray in chapter 4. They start praying and asking God for something. Here's what they say. Now, Lord, consider their threats. This is right after Peter and John are released. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. I love the New Living Translation here. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Let's leave that up there for a minute. What a simple but powerful prayer. Lord, give us great boldness. The disciples in the early church, they asked God to give them parisia. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. One author, one author wrote this about their response. Here's what he said. He says, the church realized that they were in the final chapter of a great unfolding drama. And the next step is the return and reign of Christ. We too should realize that we are in the final chapter of the true story of the world. Jesus is coming back soon. And every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Let this truth embolden you as you speak and live for the king. Author goes on. The church prayed for boldness and perseverance rather than comfort. They knew Jesus was worth more than their lives. This should make us ask, why are we not seeing a move of the Spirit like we see here in Acts? Could it be? We've grown more concerned with our social standing or reputations than about Christ and his mission. He ends by saying this, may God grant us the boldness of Peter and John by the power of his spirit. Let's make this our prayer, church family. Let's pray the exact same prayer the early church prayed. Genesis is a church family on mission together. Let's ask our Heavenly Father to fill us with the Holy Spirit and to give us great boldness to proclaim Jesus and to others. Will you please stand with me? I'd like for us to read this prayer together out loud. Beginning of the message, I asked you to consider thinking about the name of one individual in your life you might want to share Jesus with. Think back, who's that one person you'd like to share Jesus with? I'd like to first read this out loud as a prayer, but as we do, I want you to make it personal and think about that specific individual in your life. What would it look like for you maybe in the next week, in the next 30 days, sometime in the next few months for you to personally share Christ with that individual? Let's, let's read this prayer out loud together and let's pray it together as a church. One, two, three. And now, O oh Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Father, would you please open doors? Would you please fill us with your Holy Spirit? And would you give us the courage to boldly proclaim that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Amen.